Welcome to thehorse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I am your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of thehorse.com. Tonight's topic is whole horse joint management, and it's brought to you by our sponsor, Boehringer Ingelheim Vet Medica. We are joined by our experts, Dr. Rachel Hartbellini and Dr. Britt Conklin. Uh, thank you for joining us, doctors. Nice to be here. Yes, very glad to be here. So um, let's start with Dr. Hart. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and your experience managing horses with joint issues and disease? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I currently have an integrated um, sports medicine practice, which is based in Colorado, although I also travel regularly to Chicago, which is where I used to have a practice. And um, basically my work is primarily a form of chiropractic that is focused on improving the animal's way of going and the use of their bodies. I back that up with acupuncture, herbal medication, homeopathy, as well as, you know, working with the regular vets and farriers as well. Um, my experience with joints is long and lengthy. I spent 10 years on the racetrack where I saw a lot of acute joint problems and then six years in a sports medicine practice where I saw a lot of chronic joint problems. And then... Um, wound up changing my practice when I realized that most of the joint problems are solved if we work on the rest of the horse and, um, you know, not just focus only on the joint. So that's where I am today, and that's why I'm here. Okay. Excellent. And Dr. Conklin, can you tell us a little bit about your role with Behringer and your experience managing joints? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm currently uh, a professional service veterinarian with Behringer. Uh, I've been with them about two years, and most of my focus is joint and joint health as it relates to the products that Behringer provides. Um, previous to that, I was in uh, Texas, primarily North Texas, and I worked uh, solely, uh, well, I wouldn't say solely, but pretty exclusively with a Western sport horse. So mine is mostly Western performance background. Uh, and uh, we were in a large cutting horse population, uh, so kind of dialed it in down to even a specific animal. And during that tenure, I was a farrier prior to being a veterinarian, and so I kind of bridged those two fields while practicing uh, there for 11 years. And so our audience, those who join us on a regular basis, know that I have um, a dressage horse who has chronic joint issues that I'm always managing, and I work really closely with my farrier and my vet, and also um, one of my trainers who's also a vet and a chiropractor to keep him going and keep him strong. And so I, when we got both of you guys for this conversation tonight, I was really excited to talk about looking at the whole horse and, and keeping them comfortable when they have joint issues. I, everyone who's listening live, I want to let you know that this, like always, is an hour-long event. We try to stay within that time frame. We have lots of questions that were sent in ahead of time when people registered, but if you're listening live, feel free to send in questions as we go. You're welcome to send in follow-up questions or new original questions. You can do that in your internet browser right in front of you. Uh, when you hit send, that'll go to our editor-in-chief, Stephanie Church, who is receiving those and forwarding those on to me to share with the doctors. Uh, we also have some additional resources, everyone. Uh, we editors got together and we picked out the top 10 joint uh, issue topics or articles and resources that were, are on thehorse.com. Uh, if you want to take a look at that, you can do that now or you can wait, but don't 
do it in your current web browser. If you do it in your current web browser, you're going to get kicked out of this audio event and have to get back in. So open another window and go to thehorse.com slash joint health resources, uh, and you'll find those, those top 10 resources. If you're not a member, you'll have to register there to read those. Um, so since we only have an hour and this is a big topic, let's go ahead and jump in and get started. I want to start with you, Dr. Hart. Um, we have a question from Kim in Michigan, and Kim wants to know if there are any safe ways to help speed along the fusing of the hock joint. Um, alternatively, she wants to know if there are any other medications that can help with uh, arthritic hocks. So can you start with telling us a little bit about uh, what it means to have the hock fuse? Okay, so so basically, um, you know, the hock joint is a low motion joint with a lot of little bones. It takes a lot of concussion um, in just about every gait. And when um, the horses get arthritis in their hocks, it can be in a lot of different stages, you know, from very mild to pretty severe. And a kind of a sort of severe form of arthritis in the hocks is when start losing all the cartilage in the bones and they get a fusion to where the bones actually become, you know, all the little bones actually become one big bone. And the process of this fusion can be quite uncomfortable for the horse because it's basically a lot of inflammation in the joint that is creating a sort of a chemical environment where these bones can sort of become a single bone. And it can happen because of instability in the joint, the kind of work the horse does, the horse's way, its posture, its conformation, but it's pretty much kind of an end-stage hawk arthritis situation, and, you know, it's sort of felt that once the hawks fuse and they become one bone, you're going to de- you're going to decrease the amount of pain the horse is in. He's going to be, hopefully, more useful while he's out of this pain. Um, so that's basically what the fusing of hog joints is, and horses have usually kind of undergone a pretty lengthy inflammatory process prior to getting there, and it can be difficult to get the hogs all the way fused. Um, the people use different med- methods and medications, um, sometimes injecting sort of caustic substances into the hog joints to try to increase the inflammation, um, treating the outside of the hog joints, you know, uh, maybe giving the horse um, medication so that it can work hard so you increase the inflammation. And the whole process is really, there isn't really any, I believe to this day, any really great way of, of getting through this process. And probably the best thing to do is try not to get to this process in the first place. <laughs> um, having said that, my, my approach to this kind of problem is typically looking at why why have we gone to this state? What is it about the horse's environment, its work, its posture, its conformation, its lifestyle? And I try to start nipping away at those areas and help the horse basically in every way that I can so that they can start to accommodate and get, you know, either get more mobility in the hawks and get more comfortable and go the opposite direction or get them towards an area of fusion and comfort. And sometimes that involves local treatment of the hawks, you can, you know, do shockwave, you can do a variety of topicals and things that, you know, help help the process um, <clears throat> along with their, their program of work. But it's a it's a hard it's a it's a difficult area and it's difficult it's different pretty much in every individual case. You do have to sort of approach this case by case, I think. Yeah, 
And Dr. Hart, how do you know that your horse's hawks have fused? Um, it's usually a diagnosis that's done with an x-ray um, where you can start to see, you know, the bones, sort of as individual bones, and then you can start to, you know, you start to see the spaces between the bones decrease as they start to kind of come together. And a lot of times you'll see in an x-ray where the, where the hawk is partly fused, so part of the joint, you know, part of the bones, you know, bones two and three are just look like one bone, but part of it looks like two bones. And, and so, like I said, the whole process can be, can take some time and be pretty, pretty uncomfortable sometimes for the horses. Okay. Dr. Conklin, our next question is for you, and it's from Dawn in Longford, Kansas. And Dawn says she wants to know, what do you feel are some of the most beneficial preventative options for a horse that's more prone to joint disease? For instance, a barrel horse. Uh, is oral supplementation with glucosamine products or hyaluronic acid known to actually be helpful, or is that still questionable? And what about magnetic blankets and wraps? So, Dr. Conklin, there's a lot of options out there for us horse owners. Which ones should we try? Well, I think uh, that's a good question from Don. It's probably one veterinarians get all the time because horse owners want to feel like they can do something to help uh, their athlete out, and, and it is a difficult subject because there's so many things out there that uh, have a lot of claims, and whether they're truly rooted in scientific evidence or not is always up for debate uh, when you look at uh, all of those products. And for me, and you'll probably hear Rachel and I um, really talk about a common theme as far as uh, there's so many other parameters involved, and I think, uh, you know, when you you should focus on the things that you totally control. And in my mind, uh, you know, for, let's say, a barrel horse, for example, uh, you know, you definitely want to do the simple things first, which would obviously be the management issues like feed and fitness, uh, you know, and then, and then the normal management things we do, fairy, uh, and those kind of things long before you start thinking about some of those other issues. And, and I'm sure as a good horse owner, Don, that you are, you're probably already doing all those things, and so you're trying to go above and beyond that. And when we talk specifically about oral products like oral nutraceuticals, I mean, I have a little bit of a bias because um, I, I tend to want to lean on proven products through a good scientific study. And unfortunately, with a lot of those products, that is not available to us. There are a few that have done a pretty good job, and their science is pretty solid. And so for me, those are the ones that I think about, primarily chondroitin and glucosamine products. And truthfully, I like those that uh, have the avocado soy uh, extract within it. Uh, I think that the, those companies that have produced those, and there's a couple out there, uh, actually have some good data behind it. As far as... Hyaluronic acid is concerned. I think there's still a debate as to how bioavailable, and what I mean by that is when the horse eats it, how, how much of it actually gets to where it needs to be. There's still a question out there. Uh, HA, uh, which is kind of the short term for hyaluronic acid, uh, tends to get broken down in the liver just as soon as it's absorbed by the gut, and so a lot of it gets kind of chewed up by the liver long before it gets to any portion of the horse's joint. So I have a little reservation about HA products. There's some newer products out there uh, that have some claims. You'll hear about um, uh, like some natural eggshell membranes, and there's a lot of different kind of products like that. And there seems to be some support for that, but a lot of those that are buying for your uh, money um, 
you know, uh, only have um, anecdotal evidence. In other words, they, you know, one person says it works and one says it doesn't. Um, so for me personally, when we talk about oils, that's what I mean to chondroitins and glucosamines and those that have the avocado soy with them. Uh, I, per I personally have a preference toward parenteral products. So that would be products that you actually inject into the animal. And so those products, when you inject them in the animal, they don't actually have to go through the liver. So when we use um, IVHA, we know from good scientific, scientific evidence that it works. We also know that uh, polysulfated glycosaminoglycans, a big fancy word, probably the common uh, generic product that you would hear, or it's not generic, but the, the common product would be Adequan that you hear. We know it works. And then there's others like uh, Pentasan polysulfate that are well-proven perennial injectable products. So I lean more to those things that we actually put in the horse through a needle versus something I give orally. And then, you know, all of those other items, uh, you know, leg wraps and blankets and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and if you're financially capable to do that, you're, you know, you can do it. I just don't think there's a lot of strong evidence for those things. Okay, and thank you, Dr. Conklin. And yeah, I think this area of prevention is really an important one because, like, with my horse, I inherited some issues that were already in play by the time I got him. Um, I have a young horse, a three-year-old that I'm bringing along, and I want nothing more than have to have her not go through the issues that my older horse is going through. Um, so I want to follow up uh, with Dr. Hart and see her perspective on this. Do you have any recommendations for prevention of, of joint disease early on? Um, you know, again, I think, it, I think it comes down a lot to the stress, the strain that's put on the joints through use. And so, like, for me, what I tend to focus a lot on in a young horse is their posture, how they're standing, you know, if they're standing square, if they're resting legs, their feeding stance, um, if they're straight, if they're, you know, their shoulders and their hips and, you know, I look for symmetry, I don't, I, I look for how they're growing, I don't believe really in the, the butt high thing, I think that's, you know, more the way their pelvis is tipped and um, so, so I tend to... I tend to focus a lot on how, how they're using their joints, how they're standing, how they're... I had a client that was pre-purchasing a young horse and kept sending me videos, and I said, when you find something that stops in the field and is standing square, then I'll look at the rest of the horse. Because if it can't stand square at rest, then, you know, it's, it's already compensating and loading its legs differently. So... Um, that's a big, I look a lot at their bodies. Um, I think that the, I pretty much agree with Dr. Conklin as far as the supplementations, um, both oral and injectable. And um, I think with, you know, blankets and wraps, again, I think that mobility is life. And if you're rubbing your horse and massaging your horse and putting a wrap on it and paying attention to its body, um, you're, you're doing good things for the horse and you're knowing the horse and you're learning your horse, you're putting your hands on your horse and so I think there's a lot of benefit to that attention paid to a horse's legs and joints. Um, the specific modality I don't think matters as much as the actual attention. Okay. And Dr. Hart, <laughs> our next question is for you and it's uh, from Kim in Michigan and she wants to know if arthritis is uh, inherited or follows family lines? Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> you know, this is a question that's been looked at a lot, um, and I don't think they've ever really been able to prove, you know, prove that osteoarthritis in horses is hereditary. Certainly, um, I think that types of, you know, environments and breeds and growth patterns and feeding programs um, can all affect joint health, sometimes at an early age, um, like OCD, which is pretty, a pretty common joint problem that, again, they've seen more, you know, more has to do with the, you know, the growth and the feeding than they've been able to pin down the hereditary component. But then again, you see, obviously, certain lines that would have a propensity to develop these diseases probably based on all the other environments. So um, that's a long answer to the short answer, which is no. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Conklin, our next question is for you, and I'm really interested in the answer to this question because Sue in Wisconsin has a horse whose feet sound exactly like what my horse's feet were like when I got him. Um, so she says her horse has negative angles. Um, so when she says that, I'm thinking she's referring to P3 or Palmer angle. And Dr. Conklin, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, she says the horse has um, some mild navicular changes, contracted heels, um, and that he is being managed or has been managed with wedge shoes. She wants to know if there are any other options for this horse. He is a 13-year-old paint horse. Yeah, and to Rachel's, I mean, previous comment, I, I tend to would agree, but just like in this case, Sue, I mean, uh, you inherited poor feet or poor conformation. So those things, you know, are something you deal with. You, you, you have a horse now that's a management issue in my mind. Uh, you know, horses like that, you know, I can kind of picture it in my mind. You know, he's got a low heel, a collapsed heel. He probably has little to no digital cushion, which is kind of the internal frog. He has no mass to the back of his foot. And so, you know, when you don't have uh, that supporting network or that protective area in the back of the foot as he loads, you know, you can damage, um, you know, some of the structures back there, which is probably why you have some, you know, mild navicular issues. Um, and so, you know, the question is, there are better options. He's been man <clears throat> managed with wedge shoes. You know, I, obviously, as a farrier, I used to think that, you know, I could treat a colic uh, with shoes. And, and so uh, you, you have a little bit of a bias there in some regards. But I've learned over time that, uh, you know, if you use the foot as a therapeutic tool, you know, if you apply an appliance, oftentimes you've got to understand the consequence that you might induce uh, when you do that. So using the, the, the foot as a tool can sometimes be beneficial and sometimes not. So the objective, I would assume, with your veterinarian or farrier's thought process is, hey, we have these negative angles, and, and you're exactly right, uh, Michelle, you, you, the coffin bone is, is uh, the, the solar surface is not either parallelogram or positive, it's backwards. And uh, um, the thought process is, hey, we'll wedge that up. And so you're treating the bony column, the confirmation, the inherited poor confirmation that you have, and uh, trying to address some of the pain and the issues associated with the back of that foot. So in, in one regard, you're doing a really good job. You're, you're, you're trying to align the bony column. You're trying to improve, uh, you know, the, the back of the foot. But 
secondarily, you may cause a problem as you're using the foot as a tool. So most farriers know that when you wedge heels, you tend to crush and underrun the heels even more. And in reality, you probably, uh, you probably incite more contraction of your heels because you're not providing uh, frog contact to the back of the foot. So you're, you're kind of in a yin and a yang. And, uh, you know, it's almost on a, on a, uh, a shoeing to shoeing basis or a, a lameness to lameness or evaluation to evaluation basis as to what you do. If, if, the, if raising the heels uh, is not causing further damage to the heel structure and not, uh, you know, really causing increased contraction of your frog and the back of the foot, uh, then and, and it keeps them sound, then maybe that's the way to go. But you may consider over time that you've got to adjust that. You've got to provide some frog support. Uh, you know, you've got to unload some of those crushed and underrun heels because you're having more capsular problems now versus tendon or bone or bursa or ligament or whatever other issues associated with navicular disease you're dealing with. So I know that's a political, kind of like a politician answering a question. I didn't, I didn't make it very direct, but... Uh, it's an okay um, uh, way to address that issue, but you need to be thinking about, uh, you know, what exactly you are addressing and uh, what are the consequences to what you're actually doing. Okay. And, Sue, I feel for you because it's, it's challenging. <laughs> it takes lots of work work to get those, those horses comfortable. Um, our next question is another one for Dr. Conklin, and it is from... Uh, Noam in Israel, and Noam has a 15-year-old mare, a thoroughbred cross, who has developed some stifle pain that shows up when the farrier is working on her, although she's not lame. Uh, she would like you to comment on that issue and what to expect long-term and what to do, if all, to make her more comfortable. Uh, the horse mainly does um, countryside riding and short rides. So what, what recommendations do you have for her? Dr. Conklin. Yeah, uh, I mean, an interesting question in that, uh, you know, uh, how the failure is relating it directly to stifle pain uh, may be in question, maybe a very savvy failure that, that can kind of isolate that. In my experience as a, as a horseshoer, uh, you know, what we recognize is that the horse does not appreciate you holding its leg up. And in essence, that's exactly what a veterinarian will do to try to to try to differentiate where lameness is coming from in the leg through a flexion test. So uh, I would anticipate uh, that your farrier is just having difficulty shoeing the hind end of the horse because we're either holding the affected limb that's painful up for a period of time and it's causing a source of pain, or we're loading the other limb and it is painful, so the horse is giving the farrier trouble. So I guess to start off, I mean, I would want to know for sure that that is related to the stifle. And I think, you know, taking him to a veterinarian and, and the fairy and veterinarian working together, maybe the fairy explaining what he's seeing, and then working to get kind of an accurate quantitative diagnosis. I'm, I'm pretty big on, you know, we need to know the location and the severity. We need to know right where it is. Uh, the horse can't tell us, uh, but we have, you know, diagnostic techniques to help us do that. And so if I isolate it to the stifle or the hawk, or the suspensory ligament or the fetlock, then I have a better, uh, you know, I have a, a more clear idea of how I need to address that specific area. So I think the most important thing would be to get an accurate diagnosis. I, I don't disagree with your farrier. He's probably spot on, but uh, I would want to know, you know, 
where in the stifle is it uh, you know there's a lot of things associated with it is it uh, you know is it actually the joint capsule is it the cartilage is it uh, you know um, meniscus there's a lot of things in there so again I think the most important thing would be to get a really accurate diagnosis um, and, and your fear is probably picking up early signs of lameness even though you're not seeing that horse as a lame uh, horse when you ride so Dr. Conklin I, I have another horse um, that has a similar issue to this where he gets seems uncomfortable when his hind feet are being worked on do you have any recommendations that uh, the owner could make uh, to the farrier or ways that the farrier and the owner could work together to help make the horse more comfortable when their hind feet are being worked on? Yeah, and that's difficult too because as we all know, horses can be behavioral uh, or, or truly painful. And so, you know, um, what may be um, not pain may be a behavior issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and if it's truly pain, then again, I think addressing the painful situation, say it's a sore hawk, you know, and we need to address that in, in some therapeutic way. Um, you know, if, if, you, if, if you can't do those things, then my suggestion would be be nice to your farrier and give the horse uh, butte prior to his arrival or some type of non-steroidal so that uh, the horse is more comfortable. And then a savvy farrier does not want to fight with a horse, and so they figure out uh, positions that they can be in that make the horse comfortable uh, for the horse and themselves as well because they're not busy fighting. So, uh, you know, again, those are some things. But, again, I think the most important thing is figuring out exactly what you have going on. Our next question is for Dr. Hart, and it's from Joyce in our live audience. Joyce is in Virginia, and she has a 16-year-old quarter horse dressage mount that had developed a large cyst on his pastern at the age of six. Uh, after several years of rest, uh, Joyce is back to riding him, and but she says that his joints crackle until he gets moving smoothly. She's giving him um, a Majesty's Flex, flex wafer every day, uh, 10 cc's of an intermuscular glucosamine via uh, injection every two weeks, and then the horse is also getting uh, ferrococcib every day. Her, her friends are telling her another injectable would be better than the glucosamine, but the vet says it's just more expensive. Do you have any recommendations for Joyce and managing this horse with this, um, this cyst and arthritis issues? Um. Did you say whether the cyst was in a front leg or a hind leg? Um, if Joyce is, is still listening, she can um, send that in. I don't see that in her uh, original message to us, um, but it is okay. in the pastern. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like she's doing a lot of stuff to try to manage um, the actual joint pain um, using, you know, a non-steroidal as well as... Um, you know, the other um, uh, glucosamine injections. Um, I personally do, um, like Dr. Conklin was saying earlier, you know, I do tend to stick to, um, you know, the non-generic injectables because they do have studies behind them and they have been proven to work. And I think once you're getting into some of the generic uh, glucosamines, um, you know, there can be some variation in them. So, I mean, as far as that goes, um, you know, I guess I would say I... I agree with her friends on, on that point. Um, I think that um, probably the, you know, the, the big thing I look at with these kind of chronic joint issues, again, is going to be um, 
trying to, you know, control all the other things in the horse's world that I can control and, um, you know, making sure the horse gets plenty of turnout, making sure that um, he gets good care for his back and the rest of his body, uh, making sure that the horse gets good, um, you know, farrier work on time, doesn't get, you know, toes long. Anything that you can do to sort of reduce the stress in the rest of the horse's life is going to help that fetlock which if you've got a cyst in there, that isn't something that is necessarily going to go away. So you've got to try to keep the rest of the horse as healthy as you, as you can, making sure that he doesn't compensate. You know, if he's getting off that joint a little bit, he sometimes they can get a little bit sore in their backs or sore in their necks or sore in another leg. So you want to make sure that the work he's doing isn't too much for him so he's having to use his body incorrectly. Um, and again, these chronic things, they do come, you know, they come down to management, management, and um, it can be a lot of work managing them, but it can also be extremely rewarding, um, and you can make a, you know, make a lot of progress. So, um, you know, I think she's on the, on the right track as, as just being, really being aware of um, that this horse does need to be managed, and, um, you know, so, so that's great. And Dr. Conklin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, well, I mean, what I would classify that uh, based on kind of the history, I assume, uh, did you say it's in a pastern or in a fetlock in the ankle? It's, um, she's saying it's in, in the pastern. Okay. Well, that makes it pretty difficult. I mean, if it's in a fetlock or, you know, eight to ten years ago, uh, what we call subchondral bone cysts, those are cysts that are actually below the cartilage in a joint. Uh, were very problematic for the cutting horse industry, and they were primarily found in stifles. And so, uh, you know, they were they were difficult to deal with in a lot of different ways because they're developmental in a lot of situations. And so, if uh, the horse is lame from the cyst, then most of the time I will be aggressive and treat those. And most of the time, uh, unfortunately, in the pasture, it would be very difficult. But a lot of those, we actually will ingest or inject the cyst itself. So we'll actually lay the horse down. And uh, through ultrasound guidance or x-ray guidance, we'll actually inject the cyst with, uh, you know, uh, like triamcinolone or a corticosteroid to try to eliminate the cystic lining to try to improve uh, that subchondral bone uh, and in hopes that it'll fill in. And there's been some evidence to show that that's been beneficial. Some people try injecting stem cells in them. Uh, platelet-rich plasma, a lot of different options. The unfortunate thing uh, in this situation is the pastern is a very difficult joint to actually approach and get to the cyst through the joint um, um, based on kind of what they're, what they're describing it actually is. Uh, I knew a very nice horse that had that issue in his stifle. It was very frustrating to see him not be able to go on in his career. Um, Dr. Hart, our next question is from Paul uh, in New York. And Paul says that he has a 10-year-old Tennessee walker, and the horse has been intermittently lame in his right hind leg. He's had x-rays and ultrasound and HA injections in his fetlock joint. He's also had some chiropractic work and most recently some acupuncture, but he's still uh, having this intermittent lameness. Uh, do you have any suggestions on what avenue to pursue next with this horse? Paul says he's a great trail horse and we'd like to get him back to soundness. Well, these can be some pretty frustrating cases when you have kind of done a lot of different things and still having intermittent lameness problems. Obviously, they're pretty, pretty committed to trying to get this horse better, which is great. Um, 
You know, what I find a lot of times with these chronic problems is it's not so much that you're not doing all the right things, and sometimes you're maybe not doing them in the correct order or in the correct timing or, you know, you need to do a little more of this and a little less of that. And so sometimes it's not so much the treatments that are wrong, but it's just the way that they're doing them. And with these, my experience with these chronic problems are, but it comes down a lot of times to how the horse is actually using his body. And I have a similar problem with my right shoulder. I'm constantly, you know, having to work on my right shoulder because I overuse my right shoulder. And a lot of horses will overuse one hind leg and they'll end up sort of being chronically sore because even though it may not be apparent, you know, until they become lame, but they've actually been compensating and using one leg more than another sort of all along, and so therefore you might do acupuncture, but the hock is sore, and then you might inject the hock, but the back is still sore, and so sometimes you've got to kind of get together with your treatment program and sort of treat some of the, you know, compensatory problems along with the primary problems, and it looks like this horse, I guess, has been diagnosed with a fetlock issue. They don't say... Um, you know, what, whether it's a soft tissue problem or a bony problem as far as what the actual problem is. But they may need to get a little more aggressive, um, you know, topically with, you know, the therapeutics they may be treating the joint when there's actually some soft tissue issues that also need to be treated. Um, they also maybe need to treat the, you know, the back or the pelvis a little bit to make sure the horse is able to use both his hind legs appropriately. Um, he may be a little, you know, asymmetric in his gait. Um, so there's a number of, number of different things. Sometimes even, you know, their neck is a little bit involved with these horses and they have trouble using themselves, you know, behind because they're bracing through their shoulders. And so, again, it's kind of looking when you can't get the local problem solved, again, I kind of try to st take a step back and, you know, see what other problems I can help the horse with and, you know, what order I'm doing things in. And um, I would also, you know, encourage you to continue some of the chiropractic work or acupuncture work. Um, maybe if you didn't get results or you didn't, you know, um, get along with a particular practitioner. Um, you know, there's lots of good people in the New York area. I would also recommend trying somebody else because I do think that that would really help support this horse and help it heal. Our next question is for Dr. Conklin. Uh, Patricia is in New Mexico, and she has a 26-year-old mule that has pain just above her hoof that the farrier says is arthritis. She said special trimming has helped, and I give her varying doses of butte depending on her pain level. Do you have any other recommendations, and is butte safe long-term if I give it with food? Dr. Conklin? Well, a 26-year-old mule, that thing is just now in its prime, isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I tell you, based on kind of what you said there, I would have to think that your failure is seeing, um, it'd be hard to say, but I would anticipate you're dealing with a little ring bone. Um, uh, if, if the pain is truly right above the hoof, kind of in the front, it could be on the side too, but if you see an obvious, uh, you know, bump or, uh, change in the area above the hoof, and I'd have to kind of lean on the fact that it's probably ring bone. And that's a difficult thing. I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with a lot of difficult cases. I'm sure a lot of you have, you know, already run the gamut and, and are expecting uh, magic pixie dust from Sue and I, but, or, or from Rachel and I, but unfortunately, you know, <laughs> 
uh, ringbone is one of those things that's difficult. It is arthritis of the pastern joint and can involve the coffin joint or the very bottom joint uh, in that horse's leg. So the trimming probably helped because, uh, you know, you, you probably kept the toe short or rockered it or rolled it to where uh, the horse could break or the mule could break over a lot easier. And uh, uh, that's probably the reason you had improvement there. As far as other treatment options go, I mean, one, again, I think I would, again, try to get yourself a good anatomical diagnosis, and that would probably include x-rays of that region to see what you've got going on, and then kind of weigh your options based on what you find there, which might include injections. There's a lot of different things that it can be done. A lot of times they're, they're uh, financially, uh, you know, um, difficult to do. And a lot, uh, there's cases where people have fused pastern joints or dealing with a lot of ring bone, whether that's through screws and plates or whether that's actually, uh, you know, there's actually some studies doing it with alcohol, which I don't typically do. But so there's a lot of different options for you. Um, you know, as far as just giving oral non-steroidals, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with your butte therapy. Uh, I don't have a problem really giving uh, butte for a long period of time as long as it's not in a high-dose form. Uh, you know, one gram a day is probably not any big deal. There's a lot of concern related to butte because people think, and, and it has been proven, that, you know, high doses and long-term can cause some ulcerations. So that's why we have some newer non-steroidals like furicoxib that have come out that are a little safer on the gut and might be a little better if you were going to do that for a really long time. So a lot of it's going to depend on what you want to invest in the mule and, and how far you want to go. Uh, based on the things that you actually find. So, again, I think you're doing things right. Uh, you know, proper foot care is important. Uh, you know, uh, non-steroidals are good if we're going to be doing that. And then, you know, the next step I would be looking for is can I actually treat that area to improve, uh, you know, the pain and the comfort level. And, Dr. Conklin, I know as a horse owner I see my farrier a lot more often than my vet, and I'm thankful for that because <laughs> I, I don't want to see my, my vet every five weeks. Um, but when, when our farriers are working on our horses and they're seeing changes, you know, they have a lot of information for us, but where is that line between having the farrier um, give us information about the horse and needing a vet to step in in the management of, of the issues that the horse is having or in the diagnosis? Yeah, and I think it's a great question, Shell. I mean, you have got a, a, a large varying degree of uh, failures, uh, knowledge, and expertise, and, and you're exactly right. They're, they're seeing that horse every five weeks. They're uh, much like you. It's a part of their, their lives, and so they, they can pick up on small nuances and can, you know, uh, maybe see things early before they actually, you know, are very problematic. So, uh, you know, I think as long as a failure um, knows its limitations, and, and a veterinarian too, you'll be surprised at how many veterinarians don't understand farriery. And so, uh, you know, having that balance, having a good veterinarian and farrier that work together is, is really important, and, and each of them being honest about their limitations. And so, you know, obviously treatment uh, would be left to the veterinarian, and true diagnosis as far as, hey, this is what you have based on an x-ray would be left to the veterinarian. But I think listening to good Furriers is very important because they can pick up a lot of different things, and specifically related to the foot, uh, those guys are, are, are truly professionals at what they're doing. So uh, there is a line, and there's always been consternation between the two professional parties. Uh, and, and you know, personally, that's why I decided to do both because I could argue with myself, and it wouldn't be any big deal. But the point <laughs> is, is, is finding that furrier that 
that is is uh, willing to help you out and then knows the limitations as far as when we need to go to the veterinarian. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Conklin. Our next question is from our live audience, and I'm going to give it to you, Dr. Hart. It's from Cherie in Costa Mesa, California, and she says that her almost 13-year-old Peruvian Paso mayor has experienced suspensory ligament injuries for a while and is doing well out on pasture. She wants to know if there is a correlation between joint disease and suspensory ligament injuries. She, The horse is currently on Platinum Performance CG and uh, Osteon uh, daily. Well, that's um, you know that's an interesting question, and um, the Pasofino breed um, is known actually for having kind of a suspensory desmitis propensity, and so they almost seem to have a you know it's very common to to see this in um, you know in Pasofinos. Um, I think that. Um, there definitely probably is, um, you know, going to be similar stresses on the joint as well as on the, you know, the soft tissue structures. And so if you're going to have injury to one, it's likely they're both going to be stressed with the, um, the hawks and the high dispensaries are very, very intermingled. And I think for, for many years we've been incorrectly diagnosing hawk disease when really we've actually had dispensary disease. And, you know, whether it's probably more likely that we're seeing, um, you know, a lot more pain in the soft tissue that we're recognizing now lately, um, sort of, than vice versa. So I think with the with the parasols, um, you know, I think that's kind of a little bit of a separate entity as far as the the desmitis that they get. I think with the, you know, with the rest of the population, I think that you see the two hand in hand. I think that. Uh, uh, you know, in the performance horses, you're gonna you're gonna see joint disease, you're gonna see dispensary disease, um, and a lot of times it can be difficult, very difficult to to diagnose. You know, the origin of a hindland lameness, whether it's coming from from one or the other of those. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Hart. And I have another question for you. This one's from Ken in the UK. And Ken has a 16-year-old thoroughbred. Front hoof x-rays show obvious degeneration along the navicular bone edges. Um, he, the horse often canters in his field. He shows no sign of pain. Uh, when he's hacked out, or he is hacked out for an hour twice a week, uh, he's in bar shoes uh, on his front feet, uh, which are changed every four weeks. Um, but a year ago, the vet advised that the horse's show jumping and eventing career is now over. He, um, Ken wants to know if some jumping in school over, say, two feet, three inches, um, could accelerate the issues with the navicular, um, and can he even compete occasionally at this height? So this is, um, you know, people often are um, trying to figure out what they can do with their horses based on either an injury or, or an x-ray. And this sounds like, um, obviously, this horse, um, you know, must have had some issues that prompted the x-rays initially. Um, not seeing them, um, it sounds as if the um, degeneration along the navicular bone edges is likely associated with some um, problems with the deep flexor tendon, which is going to go across that area. And so, in our likelihood, what the vet was seeing, um, you know, was concerned about was probably 
um, a soft tissue injury or, you know, a propensity for a soft tissue injury in, in this course of sort. And that's probably why he, um, you know, recommended that they, you know, that he curtailed his current career. Um, and not looking at the horse, um, you know, that sounds like a little bit of a, of a, of a dramatic, um, you know, dramatic kind of thing for a horse, um, you know, based on an x-ray, but then again, there may have been a lot more going on with the horse that we can't see. Um, I do think that if the horse is showing, you know, is showing signs of soundness in the field and he's showing signs of soundness, you know, going out for, for an hour, um, you know, they should, um, it wouldn't be a terrible thing to put this horse back in, in a light, regular work program and just kind of see how far they have. I mean, I think with any problems, I know that they also asked about the size competitions. I do think with these horses, if they do have a possibility of tearing the deep flexor tendon, um, you know, jumping can be very dangerous for them and can cause a, you know, acute, acute tear. However, possibly doing, you know, just dressage would, would be safe for this horse. Um, I usually recommend starting these horses in a program, giving them, you know, a good, a good uh, core strengthening body program and, and putting them into a little bit of work and, and seeing, seeing where they go and maybe getting regular veterinary checks along the way for this horse to make sure he isn't in any, you know, underlying discomfort. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Uh, our next question is for Dr. Conklin. Peggy in Florida has a 15-year-old Tennessee walker that developed a bog spavin rather suddenly. He never appeared to be in pain. There was no limping, but he now has this unsightly lump on the front of his hock. Is there a treatment for this, and can it develop into something worse? She said uh, she would like to know if his training and riding should be modified because of it. She's currently working on intro levels for gated western dressage. Um, so, Dr. Conklin, can you explain to us first what a, a bog spavin is and and then uh, answer her question about what to do about it? Sure. Um, and this is Peggy, is that who that is? Yes, Peggy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, a bog spavin uh, is really nothing more, you, you know, like Rachel had said before, that hawk is made up of several different joints. Uh, the, the, the tibia tarsal or the top joint has some high motion to it, and it has a large joint capsule to it. And then the joints she was discussing earlier, the three below that, that are fairly low motion, and they take a lot of concussion and torque like she described. Well, that top joint is very mobile, and it has a large capsule. And what I mean by that is it's got a large balloon kind of holding the fluid, and I, I like to think of it as like uh, uh, gear lubricant. I mean, we, we, we can call that joint fluid, but it's holding all of those uh, substances that keep that joint lubricated in, and it's like a bubble right over it. And so sometimes those bubbles get stretched, and much like the first time you blow up a balloon, uh, it's very difficult. And uh, then every time you blow up a balloon after you've stretched it out, then it just fills up. In my experience, I don't get too excited about bogs unless it's a young horse, and I want to make sure that we don't have any uh, developmental orthopedic diseases. Um, where we have some OCD lesions in that hawk that are related to the bog. Now, the bog could mean nothing more than just the joint capsule got stretched, and it's always going to fill now because it's just like that balloon. It stretches easily, and it's always going to fill up with that joint lubricant. 
uh, or it could indicate that maybe, uh, you know, you've got uh, some damage to the, the cartilage or some of the other structures inside that joint. Typically, there's no trauma or problem with the joint itself unless, like I said, in some of those younger horses where they've got some OCD lesions. So, in my experience, I don't get too worried about bogs. Uh, can it be treated? Yes. You can inject those things. You can try to draw them down. You can sweat them out. But in my experience, they come right back. And it's, again, that analogy of that balloon, it's always going to fill. So, uh, you know, I've had horses compete at very high levels with ugly bogs. And they're unsightly. Uh, and, you know, it, it's ugly looking. But for the most part, in my experience, I just don't have lameness issues uh, associated with those. Okay, thank you, Dr. Conklin. Our next question is for Dr. Hart. Uh, Janet is in Illinois, and Janet has a 13-year-old Arabian uh, quarter horse cross gelding who has hawk issues. He said, she says his hawks were injected for several years, and x-rays indicated some positive but erratic healing after treatment with children. He is still easily sore, and the left joint has not fused. Is there anything that you can suggest that might help this horse? Um, usually with these kind of situations, um, I try to take a little bit of a step back and kind of ask, you know, two questions. Um, obviously, it sounds like the, um, you know, the injections have only worked, you know, have, haven't worked all that well enough to where they've also tried, uh, you know, tried treating him also with children. Um, he may have um, some other things going on um, in that leg. Um, as I said earlier, a lot of times when we're dealing with hawk problems, we're also dealing with suspensory problems. So I would certainly want to rule out that the actual joint itself was um, was the only issue. Um, and the second thing that I would look for again would be, you know, looking at everything in the horse's environment. Um, you know, his turnout, his workload his training, his nutrition, his shoeing, um, because again, this kind of chronic soreness typically means that there's ongoing inflammation in the joint, otherwise it would heal. And so there's something about this horse's environment that is continuing to create this soreness. Either that or we're missing the diagnosis and he's either got a fracture or a soft tissue problem. And that's sort of, those are sort of the two areas that I, that I try to work on. And sometimes there can be ongoing, you know, um, problems in their neck, problems in their back that make the horse stand in a certain way that causes his hop to be sore. It may be, um, you know, some change in the shoeing um, or some way that his foot is growing, something about his environment. A lot, a lot of different things can contribute to this, and you've got to start... You know, sometimes speaking a little bit out of the box and, and trying to focus on other areas of the horse's environment when you have these chronic problems because something something's creating the ongoing problem. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Our next question is from our live audience. I'm going to give it to you, Dr. Conklin. Uh, Bridget is in New Hampshire, and she would like to know what an owner can do to assist an elderly horse that already has end-stage degenerative joint disease. The horse has arthritis due to conformational faults resulting from poor management during development, but the horse is only really showing signs um, of pain and lameness during farrier trims and 
high stress, such as racing pasture mates during turnout. Uh, Bridget's recently switched the horse to Cosquin ASU and wonders what else she can do to help the horse. And Cosquin ASU is a joint oral joint supplement, nutraceutical. Yeah, perfect. Uh, yeah, Bridget, I mean, we see a lot of these now, you know. We see a lot of older horses. The, the population of horses seems to be aging to some degree, and, and, and people want to know what they can do for situations like that, you know. And, and the interesting thing is, yes, your horse has problems, but just the idea uh, of that horse getting excited and willing to run out there in the pasture and chase its pasture mates or at least attempting to do that tells you that the quality of life of that horse is still okay and so much like uh, we had discussed the hind bend uh, for the farrier and things like that I mean I think uh, you know consistent non-steroidals are a good idea uh, I think you're doing good uh, Cosequin is one of those products that I had discussed earlier that has chondroitin glucosamine and that ASU is that avocado soy unsuponifiable a big fancy word but that is one of those products that, that, that may be uh, beneficial orally, um, and so, you know, you're doing all the right things. You know, most of the time, I tell people, let a horse be a horse. Uh, you know, I don't like to, to stall rest those or put them in a box stall and confine them. You know, older horses a lot of times will have bad knees, and that may be what you're dealing with on the front end when you're trying to trim it. Uh, and it's my experience that those horses need to be out. They need to walk around. Uh, I have further digression in those end-stage osteoarthritic joints whenever I try to confine them and over-baby them. Uh, it just seems to, to progress fairly rapidly because I think, much like Rachel says, you lose a lot of the other aspects of, you know, uh, frame and, and uh, fitness and muscular tone when you do that. And so... Uh, you know, intermittent non-steroidals, you know, your oral glucosamines, I think perennial, um, you know, shots of, of HAs or Adequans or Pentasans would all be good. And then if you had a situation where that thing was horribly painful and swollen and, and, and it kind of limbs you to, to inject it, you might do that intermittently. I don't tend to over-inject those, uh, th those type of end-stage horses, uh, but I let them be a horse, and I think that's one of the most important things. Okay. Thank you, Dr. I also um, just yes, want to add, too, I think that um, keeping those horses warm in the wintertime is real important, um, you know, not letting them get too cold. I like uh, some of the back-on-track blankets or some of the, you know, the, the blankets that work with their body heat, I think, also just really helps their joints in general because uh, just like us, you know, they get stiff when they get cold. So I think that's another important thing to keep in mind. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hart. And, and I have a, another question for you, Dr. Hart, um, from Diana in California. And she wants to know what's the best way to keep a 23-year-old quarter horse gelding's knee joints comfortable without injections? Um, well, we've obviously already talked a lot about, you know, the nutraceuticals and, um, you know, the injectable intramuscular um, and, and, you know, IV um, support for the joints, which I think are, which I think are good. Um, I think with the quarter horses, um, a lot of them do tend to be sometimes a little bit heavy, sometimes a little bit heavy on their front end. So I think keeping their weight, uh, you know, keeping their weight in, in a, the lower, the lower end of their, you know, not letting them get overweight is important. Um, keeping their, um, backs happy so they're not too much on their front end I think is important. Um, treating the knees topically, um, using 
um, you know, Tramiel, which is a homeopathic um, medication, or, you know, Surpass, which is a non-steroidal. Um, sometimes just kind of rubbing them, flexing them, moving them will also kind of he- help keep them, the circulation to them, uh, keeping the horse moving around just in general, um, you know, will keep all of their joints healthy. Um, so, again, I think with these horses, it's, it's, it's treating, you know, it's keeping all of them healthy is going to, it's going to be the best the best way to keep keep the joints healthy and to, and to also try to keep them moving is uh, is huge for these animals uh, keeping keeping their muscles you know keeping them as strong as you can so they can support their frames um, is also real important to joint health. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Our next question is for Dr. Conklin, and it's from Patricia in Virginia, and she wants to know how long after. Uh, or she says, after a long racing career, a horse that she rescued had a bone chip that was left in his front leg. Is there anything that she can do to make him sound? He walks well in canters but cannot trot. Um, after any ride longer than maybe a mile, he'll start to limp at the walk as well. Yeah, Patricia, and this goes again to, you know, you've got to, where that chip is is very important, obviously. I mean, you know, if it's, uh, is it his carpus, his knee? What part of the knee is it in? Is it in his fetlock, or exactly is it? What's the related damage to that joint? Is the cartilage gone? Does he have corresponding soft tissue issues? And so all of those things go back to that common theme of we have to have an accurate quantitative anatomical diagnosis. And we've talked about it, whether it's the feet or whether it's a hawk or, or whatever it may be. That That is very imperative. And so a lot of these cases, you know, you take them to a veterinarian, and we're limited as veterinarians on our diagnostic tools. I mean, we can ultrasound something, and we can x-ray it for the most part. Uh, and so we're limited on seeing some soft tissue issues and some bony issues. But in reality, probably the gold standard would be, you know, an MRI uh, in a situation like that to really determine whether, you know, we have a lot of other soft tissue issues going on or what the true inciting agent for the lameness is. So there's a lot of things that can be done. If it was a simple bone chip, uh, you know, in a carpus, uh, I would anticipate he's probably got a lot of other shedded debris in that joint itself, and maybe you want to remove it. Uh, in his fetlock, maybe it, you know, maybe similar type situation, or again, it may be bound up in a in a tendon or a ligament that it's not going to cause the horse any issue. And the bone chip is really not the issue. There's a whole lot of other things that's causing him to be unsound. So, again, I think uh, you know, uh, working your way uh, to an accurate quantitative diagnosis is probably the most imperative thing to do for that horse. Our next question is for Dr. Hart, um, and we've, Dr. Hart, we've already talked a little bit about ringbone, but Gloria in Oregon wants to know if you have any additional advice for dealing with high ringbone in a horse. Um, well, again, I think that, you know, with these chronic, you know, arthritic joints, um, you know, you've got the, obviously the, the injectable, you know, injectable products we've talked about, and I think a lot of times, too, with rainbow acupuncture can be very helpful. Um, I've had a fair bit of success using, um, you know, acupuncture to try to treat the uh, discomfort here. Um, again, you know, getting back to treating the whole horse, I'm making sure that you know, typically a leg that's going to have ring bone is going to be one of the legs that maybe they like to overuse a bit. So seeing seeing what else is going on in the horse's body, anytime you've got an area of discomfort, you're going to have an area of compensation. 
So, you know, trying to treat the other areas that may be stiff because that leg hurts is going to help, you know, the horse manage, you know, with that painful chronic situation. Doing local treatments will also help the horse, you know, manage whether you're using surpass, <coughs> um, you know, intramuscular joint, um, joint support or um, acupuncture um, can also, you know, can also really help those horses. So um, just trying to get the body's attention there, uh, massage and other, other things will, will help just kind of control, control the pain. But it is a management situation, unfortunately. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Um, Dr. Conklin, I'm going to try to get to one more question um, tonight. And this one is from Faith in South Dakota. And she wants to know how effective uh, topical anti-inflammatory creams are, uh, such as Surpass. And can they be used in addition to Butte or instead of Butte? She also wants to know if the skin needs, or the hair needs to be shaved uh, for the skin to absorb uh, the surpass, and she wants to know if it can be used in conjunction with DMSO, or are there any other pro- human products that might work um, in place of it? Yeah, in faith, I don't, you know, for giving a shout for Beringer here, but obviously that's a product we make. So you could take my uh, you can take my response uh, as somewhat biased, but in reality. Uh, Surpass is the only topical non-steroidal that is approved through the FDA and showing to be effective. And they actually did quite a lot of research that at, at CSU, at the Orthopedic Research Center, where they actually looked at uh, what it did inside the joint after you used it. So it actually has some strong scientific uh, background to it. So it's, it's, it's an effective product. Um, I won't say that it's effective all the time, and obviously that depends on what other issues you have going on. An end-stage arthritic joint is definitely not going to respond the same way, let's say, a horse that just strained the joint capsule. Uh, so there's varying degrees of its response based on the, the problem you actually have. But it is, uh, you know, it has some good scientific background uh, to it. Can it be used in addition to butte? Sure. Uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that. The interesting thing about Surpass is it stays right where you put it. Uh, it doesn't go systemic, so we don't have the issues related to ulceration or concerns related to non-steroidals, um, you know, long term. So it stays right where it's supposed to be. The skin doesn't have to be shaved. Uh, you just have to use uh, a significant amount, a four-inch ribbon over that area. A lot of people don't use quite enough of it, uh, and so you don't have to shave it. In reality, you shouldn't use it with, uh, you know, any of those driving agents like DMSO. It, it is made to actually penetrate the skin through the way it's actually made. So uh, is it any better than some of those other topical products? Uh, I would have to lean towards it probably is just because it has solid science behind it, and that's third-party people. That's not BI looking at it or Behringer. That's a research group that that studies joints that uh, has proven that it actually does have some benefit compared to a lot of the other products. Now, do I use some of the other products? Absolutely. We all know that, you know, rubbing a little Bengay on a sore muscle, uh, you know, whether it increases, uh, you know, the surface circulation or whatever it may be, makes me feel better. So I'm not going to discredit those, but at least deep into the tissue related to osteoarthritis, you can kind of rest on surpass for, for, from that regard. Okay. Well, we are unfortunately out of time tonight. Uh, the hour went really fast. Um, I want to ask each of you, though, what 
your thoughts are on the most important takeaway for uh, horse owners to have from tonight's conversation. And let's start with you, Dr. Hart. What are your thoughts? Um, you know, I think that people can get very focused on, on joint problems and very um, upset and about them and, and about, you know, the chronicity and the problems with their horses. And I just want them to realize there's a lot of, there's a lot of help out there. I mean, a lot of the different um, products that we talked about tonight, a lot of the different treatments. I want to encourage people to think out of the box, to look at the rest of their horse, to look at the management of their horse, and, and just not to, you know, not to lose hope, to, to be positive and to, and to keep looking, you know, looking for ways to help your horses. Thank you, Dr. Hart. And uh, Dr. Conklin, what are your thoughts? I mean, mine in general are, are uh, much like Rachel's. I mean, from a, from a 30,000 foot view, I think for a lot of these folks, the most important thing is, again, getting that accurate diagnosis. I mean, you may have a regional idea where the problem is, but until you know exactly what you're dealing with, it's hard to treat that area. And so once you do that, then you can begin to back off and look at the whole horse, and then you can do a lot of other things associated uh, with that problem, but you need to know exactly what you're dealing with so that you can treat that uh, very specifically. Um, and, and I think you focus on, on the big things, uh, you know, as far as all of the things you're doing, and uh, those little details are very are, are important too, but don't lose sight of, of the, the forest for the trees. You need to really be focused on the obvious and getting that accurate diagnosis. Okay. Well, I want to thank uh, everyone who listened to this event live. I want to thank our experts, Dr. Hart and Dr. Conklin, for, for fielding all these questions. I also want to thank our sponsor, Behringer, uh, for bringing this event to everyone for free. I, for everyone who is listening, I hope you can join us next month when we're going to be talking about equine nutrition. Uh, thank you for sending in your questions and for participating, and have a great night.